We just thank you for each new day that you do give to us. Our lives, the years of our lives, are made up of days, as we will talk about today, the days of the life of Abraham. Therefore, we need to redeem each day wisely, put priorities in the proper order, live each day to its fullest for you, get right with you in the morning and end with you at night. Father, we thank you that your mercies are new every day, every morning. We thank you that this is the day that the Lord has made and that this is the day of salvation for anyone who is not saved. Father, I pray now that you would go before me, help us to learn what we can from Abraham even in his time of death and how it is so important not only to start the race with you well, but to finish well. And Father, now I just pray that we will exalt the Lord Jesus Christ, who is everywhere in the book of Genesis. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, with chapter 25 of the book of Genesis, we come to the last chapter of the life of the great patriarch of our faith, Abraham. As death comes inevitably and eventually to all men, unless we're going to be in that generation of the rapture, so it came to Abraham. And when that day of death came for him, there was only one thing that mattered. And it is the same thing which will matter when you and I leave this world. And that one thing has to do with what? Our faith and who we put our faith in. Do we live a life or did we live a life with our faith placed on God? Or did we ignore him? Did we trust in his promise regarding the seed of the woman, the capital seed of the woman, the Savior of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ? Or did we reject that promise of God regarding Jesus Christ? Did we live our life focused on the promised land, you know, heaven? Or did we set our affection on those things that are on this present world? Did we live a life that obeyed the word of God Or did we disobey the word of God? Did we even bother to know the word of God? For more than a century, Abraham had been on a pilgrimage of faith with the Lord God of heaven in the promised land of Israel, or Canaan as it was called back then. Now, it was truly wonderful way back when, when we learned and studied how he had stepped in faith out of Ur of the Chaldees to begin his spiritual journey with God. But it is even more impressive to find that more than a century later, you know, when he stepped out of Ur of the Chaldees, he was 75 years old. When he died, he was 175. So for 75 years, he was still going, I mean, for 100 years, he was still going strong for the Lord. So as I said in our prayer, it is one thing to begin well with God, but it is even a better thing to finish well. I have up here the tombstone for Dr. Lehman Strauss, who at one point in time actually came to our Bible study and gave us a wonderful message. I think he might have even come on two occasions. This is his tombstone, which is up in Scroon Lake, New York, and I made a picture of it and made it into a transparency because it has engraved on it, I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept 
of faith. I remember every time I used to see him after he was 80 years old, he would always ask Frank and I to pray that he would finish well. And that really impressed me. And I I pray that way for my own life. I always pray now that I would finish my race well. There's many that fall along the way, aren't there? And don't quite finish well. Well, the good close or the good finish of Abraham's pilgrimage upon earth is the topic of the first 11 verses of Genesis 25. Actually, the first 10 verses, but we're going to be calling the first 11 verses the first division of our outline. And we have simply entitled it Abraham's Death. You can see that our our outline is very simple. As we look at this message entitled The Pilgrimage Ended, we'll look first of all at Abraham's death, his pilgrimage ended, and then we'll look at Ishmael's death. His pilgrimage is also ended. Now, under Abraham's death, we'll be looking at four subdivisions. We'll look at his further descendants, which come from his marriage to who? Anybody know? Keturah. Right. We'll talk about that. That's interesting. And then we'll find how his fortune, his great wealth, was distributed. We'll also talk about how his family was dispersed. And, and that was according to his own command. And then finally, we will learn of his full death. And you'll understand what I'm talking about when I say full when we talk about that. Okay, so let's begin with a look at his further descendants, verses 1 to 4. And excuse me if I have a little trouble reading some of these names. All right, it says, Then again, Abraham took a wife, and her name was Keturah. And she bare him Zimran, and Jokshan, and Medan, and Midian, and Ishbak, and Shua. And Jokshan begat Sheba and Dedan. And the sons of Dedan were Asherim, and Latushim, and Leumim. And the sons of Midian, Ephah, and Eper, and Hanak, and Abida, and Aldea. All these were the children of Keturah. After the death of Sarah... And the marriage of Isaac to Rebekah, can't you imagine that Abraham would have been rather lonely? Now, according to uh, Genesis 24, verse 62, and also Genesis 25, verse 11, Isaac and Rebekah, after they were married, they moved away. They moved to the south. You know, Abraham was probably up in Hebron. They moved to the south to Be'er Lahai Roy sometime after their marriage. So even though um, Abraham was 140 years old when Isaac married Rebekah, we have to remember that God had performed a mighty miracle on his body when he had rejuvenated Abraham's body 41 years earlier at the time of Isaac's conception. And so Abraham was still endowed with the physical and the reproductive strength to be able to marry again and have another family. And that's exactly what he did do. By Keturah, we are told that Abraham had how many sons? If you count them, he had six more sons. Now, whether there were any daughters born also, there probably were, but of course the daughters are not mentioned. So we really can't be dogmatic and say there were daughters, but there probably were some daughters as well. Now, there are two different schools of thought with regard to Keturah. 
All right. Now, some Bible commentators that you will pick up and read will suggest that there is a cloud over Abraham's relationship with Keturah and that he did not take the highest moral road when he got involved with her. And their reason for saying this is because they claim that he did not marry her. They point out that in Genesis 25, 6, if you look ahead at verse 6, this chapter... It says that her son, well, it, it actually lumps her sons together with the son of Hagar, Ishmael, and refers to all of them as the sons of the what? Concubines, the sons of the concubines. Also, if you flip over, you don't have to do it, you can trust me, but if you would flip over to First Chronicles 132, Keturah is there also referred to as Abraham's concubine. And the word, the Hebrew word which is used for concubine, speaks of a female slave, you know, similar to what we found was true with Hagar, that she was a female slave. Now, although such an arrangement was something that was very acceptable in Abraham's society, Concubines, I'm sure you know, were certainly not in God's, God's plan, God's perfect plan for man. You know, it was to be one wife with one man. If the wife died, okay, you could remarry, but no concubines. Now, many Bible scholars, therefore, criticize this episode in Abraham's life. Some even suggest that Keturah was Abraham's concubine, slave, even prior to the death of Sarah. Although she is referred to as Abraham's wife in Genesis 25.1, look at 25.1, it says, Then again, Abraham took a what? A wife. Even though she is called a wife there, it is pointed out by those of this first school, all right, that Hagar was also referred to as Abraham's wife in Genesis 16.3. So they say, well, Hagar was also called his wife, but we know that she was a concubine. So it's not difficult to understand, then, why there are many Bible scholars who criticize Abraham's relationship with Keturah and also the offspring, you know, the six sons, which came from that relationship. They criticize them as well. So now that's the first school of thought. There is also a second school of thought that claims that Abraham, just as it says in Genesis 25.1, did indeed take Keturah to be his wife. I mean, it does say that, right? It says that he took her to be his wife. Now, those who hold this view say that she was merely referred to as a concubine to distinguish her rank from that of Sarah, who was the first wife and the lifelong companion of Abraham, and of course, most importantly, the mother of the son of promise, Isaac. Keturah may also have been referred to as a concubine because of her slave status. Now, those who support this second view also argue that Abraham, having learned such a painful lesson from his episode with Hagar would surely not have taken another concubine while Sarah was living. They say, you know, the man just couldn't be that dumb <laughs> after what he learned with Hagar. Now, even in this situation, uh, the, even in the situation that he had with Hagar, who was the one who um, started that whole thing? 
It wasn't Abraham, was it? Sarah initiated it. It it was her idea. It wasn't Abraham's. It had been also a one-time thing, a one-time incident with Hagar, which he learned was the, the cause of many later sorrows, as well as a serious mistake with regard to his faith in God. You know, to promise him to to be able to give him the promised heir, thinking he had to help God out a little bit. So we know, or we would think, that Abraham would have learned a lot with that one mistake, having taken Hagar as a concubine. And as much as Abraham loved Sarah, it really does seem unlikely that he would have taken a concubine while she was still alive. Once she was dead... Then, well, there was no reason for him not for him to take a concubine instead of a wife. You see, because she was dead. So why just take a concubine and 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 not marry the next girl, the next woman? This one was probably a girl. I mean, she's a lot younger than him at any rate. So it would seem probable that Keturah is referred to as a concubine more to distinguish her rank. From that of Sarah, and so that there would be no mistaking of the fact that her son, her sons, plural, were not to be viewed as equal with Isaac. Like Ishmael, Keturah's sons were sons of a bondwoman, even if Keturah, you know, willingly married Abraham. Even if she was a slave, she, she willingly, it looks like she probably would have willingly married him, even though he was an old man, because um, it would have been a, quite a thing for a slave, you know, have been a, a good thing for a slave to have married such a wealthy and powerful man. And it would have been a good thing for her children as well, because they would have been set up for life because he was so wealthy. Although I am sure that at the time he married her, he would have informed her that any children which would be born from her would be um, general, generously provided for, but that only Isaac would receive the inheritance. I'm sure that they were told that from their, that when, they find, when they first could understand. And we'll see that that's actually what happens in this chapter. Now, those are the two school, schools of thought, you know, and I pretty much I lean toward the second one where that would be because I you know I I'm, I always look at the good side of things so I believe that he did probably marry her like the scripture says as his wife but I can't be dogmatic about it and I'll let you make up your mind what you think but uh, we really do not know a lot about Keturah of course we speculate that she was a lot younger than him seeing as she did have all these children and God didn't rejuvenate her body so she was at least you know in childbearing ages. Uh, we do know what her name suggests to us because her name Keturah in Hebrew means covered with incense. And that's a good name. That's a good name. So, it, it, you know, if names mean anything, and we always say they do in Scripture, this tells us that she was a good person. Dr. John Phillips, in his commentary, says this. He says, quote, If she lived up to her name, her very presence must have been a benediction. She was a woman who added a fragrance to all her own in every task and every circumstance of life. Where she went, the incense burned. 
Keturah, we would like to believe, was the kind of woman whose life evokes worship in others. She would lift heavenward like ascending incense the thoughts of those around her. We cannot wonder that Abraham, in his loneliness, was attracted to a woman like that. End of quote. Now, in verses 2 to 4, we learn that Abraham, as I said, had six sons by Keturah. Now, nothing much is known about Zimran, Medan. Let me put their names up here. Nothing much is known about Zimran and Medan and Ishbak and Shua. And none of their descendants, if you noticed, are listed. I mean, we know they had some, but none of them are listed in the scripture. However, from Jokshan, the second son, if these sons are given in chronological order, which we think they probably are, but we don't know for sure. But from Jokshan, we are given two grandsons of Abraham. And those two grandsons' names are Sheba and Dedan. And then from Dedan, one of the grandsons, we are given the names of three great-grandsons of Abraham. Now, the two names, Sheba and Dedan, are mentioned a number of times in later scripture. You know, in the Old Testament, we read about those names several times. However... Because two of the grandsons of Cush, remember Cush back in Genesis chapter 10? I think he was a son of Ham, but I can't remember exactly. But two of the grandsons of Cush were also named Sheba and Dedan. So when we read about Sheba and Dedan later on in, in the scripture, we're not sure if they're speaking about Cush's grandsons or Abraham's grandsons. And also... A, one grandson of Eber was also named Sheba. So it gets a little complicated, and we don't know where, where the later references, who they re- really refer to, um, if they refer to Abraham's grandsons or not. So that's all I can say about it, because they're not sure. Now, the only three great-grandsons to be listed in uh, Abraham and Keturah's offspring all happen to end with the I am Hebrew plural ending. You know, like Elohim. The I am always is a plural ending. All three of those names end with I am, which tells us that these were three groups of peoples which arose from the original sons of Dedan. And those original sons of Dedan were probably named Asher, Latush, and Laum. <laughs> Or something like that. You know, and then the, the groups of people that came from those three sons, they added the I am ending. Now, you tuck that away in your trivia belt, and next week at this time you won't remember any of it. But anyhow, that's, where we, that's what it's all about with these sons. Now, from uh, Midian, the one, two, three, four, the fourth son of Abraham and Keturah, We do know, well, you know what, I forgot to put their names on there. There are five sons that are listed that came from Midian. And I'm sorry, I forgot to put them up here on the uh, transparency. They are Ephah and Epher and Hanuk and Abida and Aldea. Those are five sons which came from Midian. And what, does anybody want to take a guess what the descendants of Midian were called? Right, the Midianites, very good. And they are often mentioned in the Bible. So here's one important offspring from uh, Keturah. 
and Abraham. Now we find at first, you know, at first the Midianites, there was no real discord. There was no real conflict between the Midianites and the Israelites. Because remember, where did Moses flee? As we saw in that video last week, when he killed the Egyptian, where did he flee to? Midian. And there was no problem there. You know, his, his uh, father-in-law was a Midianite, and there was no conflict between the Israelites and the Midianites. But as you know, as time went on, they did uh, become uh, mingled with the enemies of the Israelites. For example, when uh, the Midianites joined with the Moabites in trying to get Balaam to curse the Israelites... Now, some Bible expositors have pointed out that the offspring given to Abraham through Keturah served as a fulfillment of prophecy. Remember what God had promised Abraham back in uh, chapter 17, verse 4, and what his name Abraham actually meant? He had promised him that he would be the father of many nations. The sons of Keturah would give rise to people of many nations. So some say that that is another support for why it was good that he married Keturah and had these additional sons so that that prophecy could be fulfilled. While others argue that these additional sons were not necessary at all uh, for the promise of God to be fulfilled. They say that the descendants of Isaac and Ishmael alone would have amply fulfilled the promise to Abraham that he would become the father of many nations. Through Isaac, of course, Abraham became the father of the nation of Israel, and from Ishmael came many of the Arabic peoples. So, you know, again, I'll just let that leave that up to you. You can make your choice about that as well, whether they were necessary for Abraham to become the father of many nations or not. The Ishmael, Ishmaelites... Ishmaelites. Is that, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it right. They became, eventually they became, these are the descendants of Ishmael, okay. They eventually became so mixed together with the sons of Keturah, you know, Zimran and Jokshan and Medan, Midian, Ishbak and Shua. They all became so mingled together that they almost became indistinguishable. And actually in some places in scripture, they're called... Um, synonymously called the Ishmaelites or the Midianites, you know, one and the same. They just all intermingled and became the Arabic peoples. Okay, so now that's the uh, future, the further descendants. Let's look at Abraham's fortune distributed. And for this, we'll look at verse 5 and just the first part of verse 6. It says, And Abraham gave all that he had unto who? Isaac all that he had unto Isaac, but unto the sons of the concubines, notice it's plural, Hagar and Keturah, which Abraham had, Abraham gave gifts. Okay, we'll stop right there for his fortune distributed. The second event, event which we find in the first 11 verses of this chapter, which speak of Abraham's final years. Now, these are his last years, his last 35 years that we're reading about. The second event records the distribution of his estate. Sometime before his death, we don't know exactly when, Abraham, who was extremely wealthy, took care 
of his last will and testament. He was a very, very wise, a very responsible man. And therefore, he would not leave his property for his sons to fight over after he was dead and gone. He understood that all that he possessed was a trust which had been put into his hands by who? By God. He was merely a steward of that which really belonged to God. So he was responsible before God, just as you and I are, to deal wisely with what God had given him, with his wealth. He understood, of course, that Isaac was the son of promise. Isaac was God's choice to carry on the covenant line, which would eventually lead to the Messiah. Isaac would not only carry on the physical line of Abraham, but he would carry on, more importantly, the spiritual line. As well. So Abraham understood that his inheritance belonged to Isaac alone. God had made that very clear back in Genesis chapter 17, verse 21, also in Genesis 21:10. And he knew, Abraham knew that he would have been in trouble with God, you see, if he had not given Isaac the covenant blessing and all that went with it. So it was a matter of inheritance and not a matter of just. A gift, as it was with the other sons. Now, it w- would really not have been a surprise to any anyone in Abraham's family. It wouldn't have been a surprise to Ishmael. It wouldn't have been a surprise to Keturah or to any of her sons that Isaac received the inheritance. I'm sure they had been told about this from, as I said, from the very beginning. Ishmael knew that this is why he had been cast out, you know, back when he was... A teenager, And the sons of Keturah, as I said, would surely have known about it growing up, that Isaac was the heir to their father's inheritance. Abraham's servant Eliezer had known about it, hadn't he? You know, when he had gone to seek Rebekah to be Isaac's wife, he had promised her and her family that Isaac was to inherit all that his father possessed. That was in Genesis 24:36. So in passing on his estate to Isaac, Abraham was honoring God because he was complying with the will of God. However, Abraham did not ignore his other seven sons. I mean, that would have really been not the good thing to do. He endowed all of them, all seven of them. It's amazing when you think about how Abraham had to wait for so long to have any children. He wound up with how many sons? Eight wound up with Isaac and Ishmael and six from Keturah and probably some daughters as well. But uh, he did endow the other seven sons, other than Isaac, with gifts. Abraham, you know, had large herds of livestock and was also very rich in gold and in silver. And he could possibly have had as many as 1,000 people in his service. He was probably the most powerful and wealthy sheik in all of Canaan. And he was, of course, also a godly man, a godly man who we can be sure truly did, just as we learned with Ishmael. I am sure he truly loved each and every one of his sons. And so no doubt we can feel sure that he provided each of those other seven sons with enough livestock and enough gold and enough silver and enough men servants and maid servants to have them each get a, a very adequate start on their own. Yet the covenant blessings and the bulk of his inheritance went to who? 
Isaac. Okay, so that's his fortune distributed. Now let's look at the last part of verse 6 for his family dispersed. Okay, after it says that he gave them gifts, it says, and sent them away from Isaac, his son, while he yet lived. That's very important. While he yet lived, he did all this. Eastward, unto the east country. After distributing the gifts among his seven sons born from Hagar and Keturah, Abraham sent those sons where? It says, eastward unto the east country. Abraham's covenant, of course, that here's where he was over here in Canaan. So eastward would have been over in, you know, Mesopotamia, over in this area, Arabia, um, Babylon up here in Syria, all to the east, okay? His, his, his covenant relationship and link with the land of Canaan would be continued in Isaac. Isaac was to, his descendants were to inherit the land of Canaan. So it's a very wise thing to get all the other sons out of Canaan because Canaan was going to belong to Isaac and Isaac's descendants. Although the others were his sons, yet... Just like he had done with Ishmael, they were sent away because they were outside the special covenant that God had made with Abraham concerning both the promised seed of the woman and the promised land of Israel. With what can be researched from the names of the sons of Keturah, their descendants were indeed later found east of Israel in the different areas, as I've said, of Arabia and Mesopotamia and up in the northeast in Syria. So this was a very wise action on the part of Abraham and one that he had obviously learned from God who had made it very clear years before that he had to send away Ishmael. It had been a very grievous thing for him to do, but God had said he had to do it. So Abraham was to do all that he could while he yet lived in order to ensure the safety and the protection of Isaac. If Isaac's half-brothers lived anywhere close by, then what might happen after their father died? They might band together against Isaac, or they might influence him, him in negative ways. So it was very smart of Abraham to just remove them totally from the land of Canaan before he died. Now, it was most wise of him to have settled his estate and the dispersion of his sons then, as I said, while he yet lived. If he had left that matter, you know, like his last will and testament, if he had left that up to others after he had died, it is very likely, almost very probable, that problems would have arisen as well as conflicts. Isaac would probably not have received his full inheritance, and he might even have been in some physical danger. This is a lesson really to us, that if we want our estates settled in very specific ways, then it is wise, and now we see that there is biblical support for us to do that while we are yet alive. That's why, you know, Christians, is is very important that you uh, make out your will and testament while you're still alive and while you still have your mind. (laughs) That's critical, too, because once you've lost your mind, it's very hard to to write out a a last will and testament. So I think we have biblical support 
for saying that, that it's very important. And it's, it's very, you know, God has entrusted us. We are just stewards. It's very important for us to see who gets our estate and our wealth. You know, it really should go to those who will use it wisely. So I think it's very important to, to leave it to, of course, children and, and to Christian ministries, those that will continue giving the gospel message, not just let it go into secular hands that will just use it for Satan's purposes. Well, in a similar manner to Abraham ensuring that his inheritance belonged to Isaac, God the Father has ensured that his inheritance will go to his son. Although the son's inheritance, the Lord Jesus' inheritance, may be contested and challenged, as it is by Satan and will be even yet in the future, yet it does remain settled and fixed. The Father has sovereignly taken care of matters because he has decreed that, that at the name of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, every knee will, settled and fixed, every knee will one day bow and every tongue will one day confess that he is Lord. He is Lord over all. God has appointed his son as heir of all things. It says in Hebrews 1-2, and no one, no one, not Satan, not anybody, will be able to stop that transaction from coming. Well, Abraham had not lived an easy life by any means, but he certainly had lived a full life. It was full in both years and in quality of life because he had walked, as we said, for a century with God. And in spite of a few slips and falls along the way, he had done remarkably well on the path of faith. Best of all, he had finished his course well. As I said earlier, it is a lot easier to start our Christian walk with the Lord than it is to finish well. So do pray about that. Pray every day of your life that you will finish your course well. Abraham did both. It is possible to start and finish well if we stay connected to the vine. Okay, let's look at his full death, verses 7 to 11. And these are the days of the years of Abraham's life, which he lived, and hundred threescore and fifteen years. Then Abraham gave up the ghost and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. And his sons, Isaac and Ishmael, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, which is before Mamre. The field which Abraham purchased of the sons of Heth, there was Abraham buried and Sarah his wife. And it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac dwelt by the well Lahairoi. In these verses where we are told of the death of Abraham at the old age of 175 years, we need to understand that the narrative here is not absolutely chronological. Okay, make sure you understand this. Abraham really did not die until Isaac was 75 years old. How old was Isaac when he got married? 40, okay. We'll find out next week that Isaac did not have any children by Rebekah until he was 60. 
Okay? Abraham lived to see Isaac be 75. So this means that Abraham was still alive when Esau and Jacob were 15 years old. Esau and Jacob are the twin sons born from Isaac. They were Abraham's grandsons. Okay? So this is not here in chronological order. Also, you can see that he didn't die until Ishmael was 89, almost 90 years old. Now, the reason, however, that Abraham's death is mentioned at this time is because he ceases to be the focus of attention with regard to God's redemptive program. The focus after Isaac's marriage to Rebekah turns to Isaac and to Isaac's family. And that's what we'll be looking at next week. If you see, if you go ahead and look at the rest of chapter 25, it talks about the birth of Esau and Jacob. Now, it's interesting to notice that in giving us the age of Abraham when he died, verse 7 tells us, and these are the days of the years of Abraham's life which he lived. This reminds us what? It reminds us that our years are made up of what? Days. Our years are made up of days. Each of our lives consists of days. In fact, as far as we know, each day really could be our last day. We don't have any guarantee about tomorrow. We don't even have a guarantee about the rest of today. Each day could well be our last day. Our walk of faith with the Lord involves taking life a day at a time. He promises, he promises us only really strength for each new day. We have strength for today. And we, we need to, as I said in my prayer, I believe, we need to begin each new day with him. And we need to, and we need to thank him for you know another day of life, another another opportunity to serve him, and we a- need to ask him each new day for c- his continued blessings, and for divine opportunities to share him with others. And then we also should end each day with him, and we should keep short accounts with him, you know, confessing any sin which comes into our lives, so that we don't have broken fellowship with him. Now, another interesting factor to notice about the obituary written for Abraham by God the Holy Spirit is found in verse 8 where it says that he died in a good old age, an old man full of years. Now, back in Genesis fifteen fifteen, God had made a promise to Abraham. In Genesis fifteen fifteen, he had said, Thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace... Thou shalt be buried in a good old age. Did God keep that promise? Yes, he did. It is uh, really rare. I was reading Warren Wearsby on this, and he said it's very rare to find someone who dies in a good old age. Abraham, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Abraham died in peace. As God had said in Genesis 15, 15, he would die in peace. He'd go to his fathers in peace. Well, he died in peace. Why? Because he had made his peace with God earlier. You know, when he was back in Ur of the Chaldees and he came to know God. He had placed his faith in God and in God's promise concerning the coming Savior. He died in peace because he had lived in peace with God. If a man wants to die like the righteous, then what must he do? He needs to live 
like the righteous. You know, the wicked prophet Balaam, I've already mentioned him once, but Balaam, he had cried out in anguish that he wanted to die the death of the righteous. You can read about that in Numbers 23.10. But he had forgotten something very vital when he cried out that promise. He forgot that he had failed to live the life of the righteous. And so his death was neither in peace nor at a good old age. There are not many people who see old age as a good thing. (laughs) Most elderly people, unless they know the Lord Jesus Christ and have assurance of their salvation, most old people, elderly people, senior saints, whatever you want to call them, see old age as a thief. You know, it's something that has robbed them of their youth, it has robbed them of their energy, it has robbed them of their health, it has robbed them of their uh, friends and their loved ones, it's robbed them of their joy, it's robbed them of, you know, the full use of their brain cells and all kinds of many other things. The truth of the matter is that those who do not belong to the Lord Jesus Christ really have no reason whatsoever to really be happy or to look forward to old age, right? If if you don't know the Lord Jesus, old age is a fearful thing, and rightfully so, because death is around the corner ready to rob them of the most important thing of all, their eternal soul. So it's only a true believer who has the possibility of dying like Abraham in peace and in a good old age. Furthermore, it says that Abraham died full of years. In the Hebrew, this term really means that he died full. He died full. In other words, he died satisfied. Is that how you want to die? That's how I want to die. I want to die with knowing I have lived my life to the full. That I have lived a complete life, no matter what age it could be. You know, people even who could die at a young age might have lived a very full and good life with no regrets. I don't want there to be any regrets when I die. I want to be completely satisfied. I want to have no complaints, no regrets, regrets, no unfinished business. Abraham was like that. He was ready to die. His life had been good and his life had been full. And he was ready for the new dimension of living which God had for him in all of eternity. You know, that's really the best way to look at death, isn't it? Get excited about it because God has a whole new dimension of life for us. You know, the Christian doesn't really experience death. His body dies, but he never loses. I don't believe we even lose consciousness. We go from this world instantly, you know, absent from the body, instantly present with the Lord. And he's there to help us make the transition. So, uh, you know, it's something to really be excited about for the Christian. Well, even by his death, then, Abraham serves as a, as a great example to us. All through his life he did, and now we find even at his death, he gives us a great example of faith. 
He was fruitful and he was faithful and he was full to the very end. And that's what I want to be and I know that's what you want to be. Warren Wearsby reminds us how very few people experience joy and satisfaction when they reach old age. When they look back, he says, it's with regret. When they look ahead, it is with fear. And when they look around, it is with complaint. (laughs) But death is not a threat to the person who trusts Jesus Christ and lives by his word. Old age can be a time of rich experience in the Lord and wonderful opportunities to share him with the next generation. Those white hairs have a lot of experience and a lot of wisdom behind them, don't they? A lot that should be shared with the next generation. Well, Abraham, we know, at times had faltered and he had failed under the weight of some of his very difficult tests, although he demonstrated tremendous faith when it came to the greatest of tests. You know, he failed some of the the less important tests, but the great ones he always failed, I mean, passed amazingly well. And even when he faltered, he would confess his failure and he would repent and he would get right back on track with God. And that's what's important to God, you know, to see the direction of our life, that we're always moving forward with him. We might take You know, a couple steps forward and one step back. But as long as we repent, get right back with him and and keep on moving forward, that's what he's looking at. He wants to see that the direction of our hearts and the direction of our lives is always to get closer and closer to him. Abraham's faith did increase with the years and with the trials. And the grand summation of his life is that it was one of triumphant victory. More is said about Abraham in Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of faith chapter, than any other person. The God who had guided him for over a century did not forsake him at the end. He certainly will not forsake us either, will he? We have his promise. He will never leave us nor forsake us. We are told that Abraham was gathered to his people. You notice that? And that, that's in verse 8. He was gathered to his people. This is the first time in the Bible that we find this phrase. And it's an it's a important phrase. Now, it could not mean, this little phrase, gathered to his people, could not mean that Abraham was buried with his ancestors or with his family. I mean, his family, his father was probably buried up in Haran, up in, you know, upper Mesopotamia. One of his brothers, named Haran, was buried down in Ur of the Chaldees. Probably his mother had died before he left Ur of the Chaldees. She was probably buried down there in Ur. Uh, Lot was probably dead by this time. We don't know for sure, but he was probably dead by this time. And we don't know where he was buried. But it, it does, it cannot mean that he was buried with his ancestors or with his family because he was buried in the cave of Machpelah and there was only one other body there and whose body was that? Sarah's. Sarah's body was the only one in the tomb of Machpelah where his body was laid to rest. 
So rather, the phrase gathered to his people speaks of life after death. This is why this is a very important phrase here. It doesn't refer to his body being gathered with his people because his people weren't there. If it was speaking of gathered to his people, what it really should have said that he was gathered to his wife. But it says he was gathered to his people. So this speaks about life after death. He was gathered together with those who died in faith before him, such as Adam and Seth and Enos and Canaan and Mahaliel and Jared and Enoch and Methuselah and Lamech and Noah, etc. Those men of faith, those were the ones to whom he was gathered. His soul was gathered. So this is a phrase used to speak of the abode of Abraham's soul. He did not cease to exist when he died physically, although his body was, yes, laid to rest in that cave of Machpelah, which he had purchased for Sarah's body some 38 years earlier. You know, he did that demonstrating his faith in God's promise that his his descendants would one day possess the land. That was an act of faith, buying that cave there for their burial. Yet his soul continued to live and was gathered together with those believers who had preceded him in death. So the term his people does not speak necessarily of his blood relatives. I mean, some blood relatives, yes, but it doesn't necessarily speak of that. Rather, it speaks of those who were his people because of their common faith, their faith in God and the coming Savior. You know, prior to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, those who died went to a place called Sheol. It's right here. I don't know if you can read it. Sheol, or in the, in the New Testament, Sheol is referred to as Hades. Now, there were two sections, or there still are, I guess, two sections or dwelling places in Sheol. One was actually called Abraham's bosom in Luke 16:22 or also referred to as paradise in um, Luke 23:43 and that section of paradise or Abraham's bosom was for the souls of believers it was a blessed place which unlike the other compartment of Sheol or Hades which was a place of terrible torment for who unbelievers the souls of unbelievers <clears throat> and between these two sections of sheol or hades there was a great impassable gulf fixed and no one could cross from one section to the other either to aid or to escape well after the lord's finished work on the cross of calvary and his bodily resurrection from the dead, he went into the paradise section of Sheol, or Hades, and he took all the righteous believers, he took all their souls, such as the souls of Abraham and Sarah, he took them with him up into, (laughs) it's not on here, but up into the third heaven. You see, they were at long last actually covered with the sinless shed blood of the Savior, their Redeemer, the true Lamb of God. And therefore, because they were covered with his shed blood and were imputed with his righteousness, they could now be in the presence of a holy God. So Christ took them 
into the presence of God in the third heaven. He had paid in full the price for their sins. Now, since the time of Christ's resurrection, when a believer dies... What happens to his soul? Does his soul still go down to uh, the paradise section of Sheol? No. Mm -mm. Ever since Christ's death and resurrection, now when a believer dies, his soul goes instantly into the third heaven, into the presence of the Lord. That's why it says, absent from the body, present with the Lord. However, the unsaved, when he dies, he still goes to the fiery, tormenting section of Sheol, or Hades. And the, and the crowd there has been gathering ever since the first unbeliever ever died. Now, at the time of the great white throne judgment, all of the people in this section of, of Hades will be gathered together to stand one by one before the God whom they rejected, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there, the worst scene in, the, in the, all of eternity, there they will hear their final judgment pronounced. And they shall then be cast into the eternal lake of fire, which is also known as hell. Okay? You see, Hades... The torment section of Hades is merely a temporary abode for all unbelievers. The lake of fire or hell is the permanent abode for all unbelievers. But Abraham had nothing to be concerned about with either Hades or hell because it says he was gathered with his people. He was gathered with the redeemed because he had placed his faith in the Redeemer. There are ultimately only two gatherings of people, you know. All people, all people, will either be gathered together uh, with their own kind, which are believers, or with their own kind, which are unbelievers. And so the ultimate question is, whose kind are you going to be gathered with? The unbelieving kind in hell, or the believing kind in in heaven and the choice rests with each of us i mean it has to do with what we decide to do with the redemptive work of the lord jesus christ on the cross do we believe that he truly did die indeed for our sins on our behalf that he is lord and that he is the coming you know the promised seed of the woman all the way back to genesis 3:15 the one who crushed the head of satan uh, if god's people you know are your people in this life, then you will be gathered with them after death. If God's people are not your family in this life, then you will be joined with the crowd gathering right now in Hades, awaiting their final move to the lake of fire. And this choice, I can't stress it enough, and you all know it, is the very most important decision a person can ever make, because eternity is a long, long time, isn't it? So if you are in any way even a little bit doubtful about whose crowd you will be gathered with, please let's settle that today. Today, remember how we talk about each day is so important. Today is the day of salvation. Let's make sure we take care of that. I don't want anybody to leave here wondering about where they will spend eternity. Now it's interesting, I thought, to notice that the book of Genesis... The first book of the Old Testament 
ends with a full tomb. Okay? Because this cave of Machpelah became not only the tomb of Sarah and Abraham, but we're going to find out that it also became the final tomb of Isaac and Rebekah and also of Jacob and Leah, his first wife. Rachel died and was buried outside of Bethlehem. But the book of Genesis ends with a full tomb. Whereas the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first books of the New Testament, end with what? A full tomb? No, they end with an empty tomb. Aren't you glad for that? The tomb in which Christ's body was laid after his crucifixion is totally empty. And it has been ever since the third day after his death. So it remains true that because he conquered both death and the grave, there need be no permanent sting and no final victory for those two enemies of man, death and the grave. There need be no sting and no victory. Isn't that the best news you could ever hear in this life? That we don't really need to fear death. He has taken away its sting. He has been victorious over the grave and over death. And if we will look to him in faith, that victory is also our victory. Well, before we move, well, I don't know what time it is. I forgot my watch. Mine, I'm, tr- I'm in trouble. Whoa, I'm in trouble. All right, let's look real quickly at the, uh, I'm in big trouble. Let's look at the death of Ishmael. I can't even say you can read your notes because you can't. Oh, dear. All right, the death of Ishmael, verses um, 12 to 18. Now these are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's handmaid, bare unto Abraham. And these are the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names according to their generations. The firstborn of Ishmael, okay, here we go, Nebajath and Kadar and Adbael and Mibsam and Mishma and Duma and Massa, Hadar and Tima, Jetur, Naphish and Kedamar. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their towns and by their castles, twelve princes according to their nations. And these are the years of the life of Ishmael, and 137 years, 137 years when he died, okay? And he gave up the ghost and died and was gathered unto his people. And they dwelt from Havilah unto Shur, that is before Egypt, as thou goest towards Assyria. And he died in the presence of all his brethren. Okay, again, let me just say real quickly that as was true with Abraham, this death of Ishmael is not given in chronological order because Ishmael does not die before the birth of Esau and Jacob. In fact, he did not die until Esau and Jacob, the twin sons of Isaac and Rebekah, were 63 years old. So the only reason that the Holy Spirit records the death of Ishmael at this point in time is why? Because he wants to get him out of the way so the focus can be on Isaac. When God had made it clear to Abraham and Sarah that they were going to have a son and they were to name that son Isaac and that that it was to be through him and not Ishmael that the covenant promises were to pass. Do you remember what Abraham had done? He had cried out a prayer to God and said, oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. And then God had followed up that cry, that prayer, by promising Abraham that he would bless Ishmael and that he would make him fruitful and he would multiply him exceedingly and that, here's the thing, he said in Genesis 17:20, 12 princes 
would be born from him and that he would make of Ishmael a great nation. Well, if we didn't have this list, even though these names are hard to read, of the 12 sons of Ishmael, we would not know that God had fulfilled his promise to Abraham regarding Ishmael. Ishmael did give birth, or his wife gave birth to 12 sons. Now, how do you think that made Isaac feel? For a long time, Isaac and Rebekah couldn't have any children. And when they finally did, they only had two, whereas Ishmael had 12. Well, I don't think that they probably had a problem with it, but I'm sure once in a while maybe they did. Anyway, he was prophesied to have 12 princes, and these sons, we are told, had towns of their own and even castles, so they were indeed princes. Now, the histories of these sons have become blurred and mingled over the passage of time, but it is known that from them, from these 12 sons of Ishmael, along with the sons of Keturah, the six sons of Keturah, along with also the sons of Esau, the twin brother of Jacob, and also along with some of the other descendants of Shem and Ham. All these peoples mingled together and became the Arabic peoples of the world today. In fact, one son, the son that's called Kedar, K-E-D-A-R, his, his name is actually used synonymously with Arabs in the Old Testament. <clears throat> well, after listening the the generations of Ishmael, then the Holy Spirit prompt, prompted Moses to write about the death of Ishmael. And we learn in verses 17 and 18 that after uh, 48 years after the death of his father, Abraham. So, see, Abraham didn't die and then immediately afterward Ishmael died. There was almost a half a century in between. 48 years after Abraham died, Ishmael died. And he actually died 58 years before Isaac died. And it tells us Ishmael was 137 years old when he gave up the ghosts and died. And we are told that he died in the presence of all his brethren. But that's, that's a confusing little phrase because it sounds like he had a nice death and all of his brothers were gathered around him. But the Hebrew doesn't mean that at all. We learned this back in another verse in scripture. I don't know. I think it was in, in Genesis 16:12. We learned that this phrase means that he actually died against the face of all his brethren or um, to the east of all his brethren. It can mean either one. And also where it says he died, that's literally the Hebrew word for fell. Now, we don't know if this means that you remember God had said he, he would be a wild man and that his hand would be against every man's hand and every man's hand would be against him. What this possibly could mean is that he fell in battle against someone because it does literally mean fell. Um, so th- that is up in the air. But we do know that the phrase means that he was a loner. When he died, he really was either standing against his brethren or he was east of all his brethren. And something happened where I, it doesn't look like he had a, a normal death of old age, that he fell. But whatever the case might have been, the fact remains that he lived beyond the grave. Because just like his father, it says Ishmael was gathered unto his people. Now, since this phrase is only used in the scripture of saved people, 
It would seem, therefore, to indicate to us that Ishmael, although not sharing in the physical aspects of God's covenant with Abraham, did by faith in God share in the spiritual blessings which belong to all those who die in true faith. Now we're told that his sons live from Havilah unto Shur, that is before Egypt as thou goest toward Assyria. And essentially what this is is just the, the sandy desert areas of northern Arabia. So with the pilgrimage endings of both Abraham and Ishmael, the way is now cleared for us to shift our focus to the second major personage of the latter division of uh, Genesis. Remember in our introductory lessons, I told you that you can take the whole book of Genesis and divide it in two main divisions. You have the first 11 chapters, all right? And in those first 11 chapters, there are four big subjects. We have the fall, no, excuse me. We have the creation, we have the fall, we have the flood, and we have the Tower of Babel or the Table of Nations. Now, in the second half of the book of Genesis, which is from chapters 12 through 50, it's a bigger half, we also have four main subjects, and they have to do with the patriarchs of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. So if we look at it that way, we're coming into, I mean, we're getting toward the end here because we finished the first four <laughs> divisions and now we've finished Abraham. So we only have three divisions to go. We're going to be talking about the life of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. The problem is when we get to Jacob and Joseph, <laughs> there's a lot of information. Okay, thank you for your patience. We've gone a little bit overboard, but... Uh, I appreciate you letting me finish the lesson. All right, let's close in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we do again thank you for this opportunity we have as believers in the United States of America where we are still free to come and study your word. Thank you for that opportunity. May we never take it for granted. Father, help each of us, each of us, to fight the good fight, to finish our course well as Abraham did, to keep the faith. And may we one day, each of us, if we don't go in the rapture, which we hope we do, but if not, may we each die in peace, having made peace with you. May we die as the righteous, because we have lived a righteous life with you. May we die in a good old age. May we be gathered unto our people the believers. May we one day be gathered with Abraham and Sarah. Father, may we die satisfied. May we die full of years. Not necessarily speaking of the quantity of our years, but of the quality. May we die with no regrets, having taken care of our, our estate, that which you have entrusted into our stewardship. May we die with no complaints. May we die complete, ready, to join you and to experience the new dimension of living that you have prepared for those who love your son. And these things we pray in his name, for his sake. Amen.